Good morning, saints. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, you are holy, and we, we confess that to you. We believe it. We, we are grateful that we are presented with the opportunity to open the Scriptures this morning and, and see it anew. We pray, Father, that as we, as we see your holiness in the Word, that, that we would love it, that we would be drawn to it and not afraid of it, that as we see the things that you love and the things that you hate, that out of reverence for you and your holiness, we would want to love those things as well and hate the things that you hate. We pray, Father, that we would just be mesmerized by your character this morning, that your Holy Spirit would serve us in this way, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us as a gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that, that we would be transformed and we would leave this place with a, a deep desire to live in accordance with your set-apartness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, we'll be jumping around a little bit this morning in, in Leviticus 19, we're, we're not going to cover the whole chapter, but we'll be, we'll be moving around a bit, but we'll, we'll begin by reading the first eight verses, so as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me, and we will read just those first eight verses, Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Whenever you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people may be seated. I wonder how many of us have 
been cleaning out a, a drawer or a closet and come across an old owner's manual for an appliance that we no longer own. Any, anybody have that experience? I've done that many times because I'm a fan of the owner's manual. Uh, now, what, what do you do when you come across these old, obsolete owner's manuals? Do, do, you, do you sit down and read them? Just pour over them? Memorize lines from the troubleshooting section even? Do you, do you take it and put it in your safe just so that you don't lose it? I'm, I'm assuming that like me, you throw it away, right? If you don't, if you don't throw away the old owner's manuals, you're what some might call a hoarder. And we have biblical counselors standing by to help you. Because there's, there's no good reason to keep a, an obsolete owner's manual. Now, now some might say that what we've been doing for the last few months would be strikingly similar to reading and even cherishing an old owner's manual. Because Leviticus is part of the Old Covenant. If we were to turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, we would find the author of Hebrews teaching us that the coming of the New Covenant has rendered the Old Covenant obsolete. And this is why we find the New, the New Testament authors like Paul writing things like, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And so, why then would we read and study and even seek to apply principles from what might be thought of as an obsolete manual? Why are we doing this? Well, it is true that we are not under the law. We, we are not partakers of the Old Covenant. But a great reason to spend time in Leviticus and to study these laws in chapters 18 through 20 is as a window to the heart of the God who created us. It's as a window to the heart of the God of the new covenant. Because as, as we see what God commands and what God forbids, we actually get a picture of the things that God loves and the things that God hates. And the more that we revere this God of the new covenant... The more that we revere Him, the more precious we will find every bit of information that we can regarding who He is and we'll want to be like Him. And so everywhere that we can find what this God loves and what this God hates, we'll want that information so that we can embrace it and and be like Him. Now, at the beginning of this section, this section from chapters 18 to 20, God said, You shall not do like the Canaanites and the Egyptians, but you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes. And so, on the outside of this section, chapters 18 and 20 addressed that first concern. That is, those outside chapters were all about, hey, don't follow the practices of the nations. But right here in the middle, chapter 19, what we're looking at today and Lord willing next week, Right here in the middle addresses that second concern, which is follow Yahweh's rules. Follow Yahweh's statutes. And so, as we've just read, chapter 19 opens with this exhortation, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this this middle chapter is, is broadly about holiness, or sometimes we use the word sanctification, which, which in its its 
foundational sense is, is about being set apart, being distinct, being different than everything and everyone else. And so what we're finding here in chapter 19, what we will find is that what God wants is for His people to be like Him in that they are distinct. They are set apart. So over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be jumping around in chapter 19. As we're jumping around, I assure you, we're eventually going to have covered all of chapter 19. But we're going to be jumping around, looking at these laws and considering them from the perspective of what is it that God loves? And what is it that He, he, he hates? So that we, we are gleaning information about the character of this God who, who, who not only created us, but has brought us into the new covenant in Christ so that we can be transformed into His likeness. The first broad principle that we gleaned from the text this morning is that God loves to be revered. God loves to be revered. And this is one of two broad principles that undergird every law in this chapter. God loves to be revered. The other broad principle we'll look at next week, which is that God loves for His people to love their neighbor. But this week, it's all about God loves to be revered. Now, first of all, what, what does it mean to revere God? The word translated occasionally here in chapter 19 is revere is more literally fear. And, and it's interesting that the same Hebrew word is used four times in this chapter. When God is the object, the English Standard Version renders it fear. But when someone or something else is the object of that same verb, the ESV translates it revere. Now, both words are great ways to translate that Hebrew word, but because of the way that we tend to use the word fear in our culture, I would suggest to you that revere may be the best way of capturing the, the inherent idea in the word. Okay? So the first instance of this word is in Leviticus 19.3. We've just read it. We'll read it again. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother. Revere your parents. We don't fear our parents in the sense of being terrified of them. So revere is a great way of, of, of translating the word. Similarly, verse 30, you shall reverence my sanctuary. Again, it's the same word. And our typical way of using fear wouldn't work well there. You, you, you aren't afraid of the sanctuary, but rather you, you respect it. You're in awe of the sanctuary of God. The next use or another use would be in Leviticus 19.14. So if you look at 14, it says, You shall fear your God. Now that's the exact same word. And I would say that we're intended to understand it the same way. Not be afraid of or terrified of God, but revere Him. Be in awe of Him. Respect God. And the same it should be, be read in verse 32. You shall fear your God. When we revere something, we stand in awe of it. That this word, this word can, can, can speak even of deep love. The, the typical ways that we use the word fear in our everyday life, it, it may be harder to keep the idea straight if we, if we use the word fear. Now, if you're good at keeping those ideas straight, then, then, then think of it as fear. It's totally fine. The, the, the Puritans loved that word fear because they're good at keeping these ideas straight. We may not be that great, so I'm, I'm going to be using the word revere. God loves for His creatures to revere Him, to be in awe of Him, respect Him. 
Now just think about when you see a, a glorious sunrise or sunset, you, you, you enjoy that, right? It is pleasurable to be awed. We, we are wired for awe. And, and what is it typically, most of us, that we want to do when we are awed? If there's, if there's someone else around, particularly. If there's somebody else around, we want them to be awed. Hey, look at that! I mean, that's amazing, right? We want to share it and we want to watch them be awed and derive joy from their enjoying the same sunrise or sunset or canyon or whatever it is. My wife is not content to be awed alone. She just won't stand for it. She wants to enjoy you enjoying what she has just been awed by. And, and I would say that God is very similar. There is no sunrise, though, or sunset, or mountain, or valley, or, or ocean of stars that is anywhere close to as glorious or awe-inspiring as God Himself. And so He loves sharing Himself with His people and seeing them awed by His glory. As we look through these laws, we find that they are not just expressions then of impersonal morality. They're not just cold expressions of of what is right and what is wrong, but rather many of them are commandments or prohibitions tied directly to reverence or awe for God or His name. For example, verses 11 and 12, God says, essentially, don't lie and so profane my name. What He's saying is, Look, out of reverence for my name, my reputation, don't speak an untruth. Look down at verses 13 and 14. God says, don't exploit people, but you shall revere your God. God is connecting, being kind to, treating people well, out of awe of Him. We'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing. In verse 32, He says, be respectful of your elders. And revere God. He connects revering earthly authority out of revering Him. There are numerous times in this chapter where obedience to laws directly tied to revering Him. This is why we we could find few better ways to spend our time than feeding our minds with the excellencies of God in Christ. Do you know that some people who have an obedience problem They have that obedience problem, not because they aren't saved, but because they revere other things more than they revere God. And here's the good news about that. That is not a hopeless situation. That can be changed. And it can be changed rather simply. We need to spend more time gazing at the excellencies of God in Christ and less time gazing at the the other thing that we tend to revere more than God in Christ. Take our eyes off of these earthly things that we are revering and turn them to God in the Scriptures, looking specifically in the Scriptures for what it is about the grandeur of the living God that would elevate our reverence for Him. And when we do that, what what we will find is that we want to obey you see the connection here in some of these laws? Why else would God say, 
revere me connected to these laws. It's because reverence for God leads to obedience. It's connecting these things for us. God loves to be revered. And the more we revere Him, the more delightful we will find it to walk in His ways. You know, this is one of the reasons that as we read Psalm 119, we find David saying, I love your law. Love it. Because it's pointing him to God. He, he loves the law of God because it moves him to revere God. He sees in the law of God, the heart of God. I would suggest to you that we would, we would be the same way. The more we, the more we chew on the, the law of God as a picture of the character of God, we too will grow in our reverence for God and therefore delight to obey Him. The second principle that we find in these pages, or in this chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, is that God loves for His people to be distinct. God loves for His people to be distinct. And this is really just another way of saying that God loves for His people to be holy or sanctified. Now typically when we use the word sanctification, as New Testament believers, we're talking about that process of slow growth toward Christ's likeness. But again, as we've mentioned numerous times in our study of Leviticus, that being sanctified in its foundational sense means to be holy or to be set apart, to be distinct. And that's the way that we're using the word this morning. To be different from those around us, to be different from the culture. We've already noted that the chapter begins with this overarching command. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is directly re- related to His people revering Him. They're, they're, they're living in ways distinct from the world is an expression of their reverence for, their awe of Him. The, the, the greater God is in my eyes, the more awed I am by Him, the more I want to be like Him. So, if God is holy, that's what I want to be. God is different from the world, then that's what I want to be. The, the, the more we revere Him, the more we want to be distinct from the world. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the laws of verse 19, which appear peculiar at first glance. Look again at, at Leviticus 19, 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. These, these laws against mixing, uh, mixing of kinds, it's not, it's not based on the inherent immorality of interbreeding cattle or mixing two kinds of seed in one field or using two materials in one garment. The point is the point of the whole section, chapters 18 through 20. And that is, don't do the things of the nations. Do what God says to do. Be different. Don't mix. Be holy. So these three laws, which seem very peculiar, they're not so peculiar when we understand them in the, in the context of the whole. These three laws, which I, I would argue that these are the thematic center of chapters 18 through 19, indicating that they are pivotal to understanding the whole thing. They are a picture of the grander theme. These three laws are almost like parables in the form of commands. By not interbreeding their cattle, the people were acting out. They're not mixing their their culture with the pagan cultures around them. And by not sowing their 
their fields with two kinds of seed. They were living out their own visual reminder. Hey, we're called to be holy. We're called to be distinct, different from those around us. By not having any garments with, with, with two different kinds of material, they were saying to themselves and others, we're going to be devoted to Yahweh alone and not double-minded and double-hearted in our worship. And, and we want that because we revere our God. God loves for His people to be distinct in these laws in verse 19. They picture that. And as we, as we look at other laws in chapter 19, we find three broad ways in which God loves for His people to be distinct. And the first of those is that God loves for His people to be distinct in their formal worship. God loves for His people to be distinct in their formal worship. Let's go back up to Leviticus 19.4. 19.4 reads, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now, there's something interesting here. Again, in the Hebrew text, the, the word for idol is, is a word that could come from two different places in the Hebrew language. It is either the diminutive form for God, which, which would be something like godling. Don't make for yourself a godling. Or it is the word from the root that means to be weak. Now, pick which one you want. Either way... The text is saying, hey, don't make yourself a God that is smaller, weaker than the one true God. Don't, don't, don't make a godling. Don't make a, a weakling deity. And so diminish yourselves and diminish worship itself. Out of awe for the one true God, be distinct by only worshiping Him. Not some godling or, or weakling man-made deity. Verse 5, when you offer a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. Of course, we, we read the, 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 the coming verses a few moments ago. and You re- may remember this from when we studied the peace offering a few, a few weeks ago. We called it the fellowship offering. And you'll, you'll remember that this is the offering that depicts a sharing of a meal between the offerer, the priests, and God Himself. And, and God is just reminding the people here in Leviticus 19, God has very specific ways that He wants to be worshipped. By paying attention to those details, rather than adopting the practices of the nations, they will show themselves to be distinct and faithful to Him, glorifying Him as the one true God. Pastor John read to us this morning from, from Matthew chapter 4, where, where Jesus was determined to worship the Father alone, even at a time when we might expect Him to be the most susceptible to doing otherwise. Just over and over, the, the, the devil present, presents Him with opportunities to turn away from the truth. And in, in, in particular, verses 8 through 10 there in chapter 4, He says, hey, look, He takes Him to this very high mountain. Look, look at all this. I'll give all of this to you if you just worship Me. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Jesus is so perfect in His worship, so perfect in His worship, that He qualified Himself to serve as the spotless sacrifice for our sins. And so we should follow Jesus in the power of His Spirit in worshiping the Father alone. Now, in our context, formal worship is not the 
the offering of, of goats and bulls and lambs, as we've, as we've mentioned in recent weeks. Formal worship includes all the things that we're doing this morning. Public reading of Scripture, corporate prayer, worship and song. Later, later we'll have the opportunity to give offerings. Last week we observed the Lord's Supper. There, there, there are numerous ways in which we might be indistinct in our formal worship. That is, there are numerous ways in which we might incorporate ways of worshiping that are not distinct in the ways that God has said, hey, look, this is how I want you to worship me. And, and I, I, lament, I lament this, but, but what we're doing right now is, is not that normal in churches across America. We have, we have opened Bibles and we've read them and now we're considering what a text means and we're considering its application to our lives. Now, there was a time in the American church where that was the norm, but it's not the norm anymore. Now, now listen, listen to this. This is, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. How is it that God wants to be worshipped formally by His New Testament church? We could say there are numerous ways in which He wants to be worshipped by His New Testament church, but one of them is He wants His Word to be preached. Those verses should be taken as a charge, not just to pastors, but also to believers. Do you understand that? This is, this is, this is not just, just an imperative to, to people like me and Pastor John or Pastor Rick, the other elders, but this is an implied imperative to you in your worship. Don't ever go to a church where there is not biblical preaching. And, and, I, would, and I would suggest to you that it is your responsibility that if I ever stop preaching the Word, that you should love me enough and you should love the body enough to rebuke me and remove me. And if the other elders ever stop, get rid of them. And if you find the culture here changes, the whole culture of this church changes, and we are not upholding the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, go to a different church. Preaching is just one example, but God loves for His people to be distinct in their formal worship. I encourage you this, this afternoon, just think through that. What are the ways that the Word of God calls us to worship formally? And what will I do to uphold these things? God also loves for His people to be distinct in their informal worship. Their informal worship. Informal worship are all those acts of devotion done outside the formal. Any kind of obedience from the heart to the revealed will of God, we might consider informal worship. So, for, for example, in, in my week this last week, I regarded the, the preparation of this sermon as informal worship. 
I also regarded my physical exercise as informal worship because I was doing it as unto the Lord. My, my encouragement of other saints, I regarded as informal worship. I was doing it as unto the Lord. Anything done out of devotion to the Lord, outside of the formal, we could think of as informal worship. God loves for His, His people to be distinct, holy, in their informal worship. That is, set apart from the world in these things. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at Leviticus 19, 27 and 28. Leviticus 19, 27. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So obvious, right? Obvious, obviously what I just said. What are we to make of this? This may seem a little bit obscure to us. Now, verse 27 may be a sore spot for some of us. For some of you, stress and old age have rounded off the hair on your temples a while back. And so I do not bring this up to, to rub it in at all. Um, likewise, if I could grow a beard, you could bet the farm I would never mar its edges. But uh, genetically, I am prevented from either compliance or disobedience here. But verse 28 actually gives us a little bit of a clue as to what these two verses are getting at. Is don't make cuts on your body for the dead. That's a little bit of a hint as to what's going on here. These are all, by people who study these things deeply, these are all regarded as pagan practices of religious expression and or mourning. So don't groom like the pagans. Don't mourn like the pagans. That's the idea. More broadly, we could say, don't do life like the pagans. Don't do life like the pagans. And the applications are just numerous. And, and certainly we could pick up these ideas in the New Testament. This is broadly taught in the New Testament. Don't do life like the pagans. I'd like to show you one, one application that Paul does make in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you, if you would turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians, there's a situation in which a faction of the church at Corinth is rebelling against Paul's authority. And that faction, rebelling against his authority, Paul calls on them to repent. Some of them don't repent. And Paul regards them as unbelievers. Those who don't repent, he regards them as unbelievers. Now that alone is a principle that we should take home with us this morning. Okay? Someone whose life is characterized by disobedience is someone whose profession of faith we cannot affirm. That's worth saying again. Someone whose life is characterized by disobedience is someone whose profession of faith we cannot affirm. And Paul demonstrates that for us here by referring to these people as unbelievers. Now, to these unbelievers, Paul applies some of these principles here in Leviticus 19. And we could say that Paul's argument in, in 2 Corinthians 6 is don't do life with the pagans. And, and, and with that word pagan, he's referring to these, these unbelievers who have, who have not repented. Okay? Don't do life with the pagans so that you don't do life like the pagans. All right? Don't do life with them so that you don't do life like them. Now look with me at 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. He says... Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. Stop right there. These unbelievers, these are the people that that I've just explained to you. These are the people who have claimed to be believers. They have not repented, and so now he's calling them unbelievers. But with that, with, with the, the, these words, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he's alluding to Leviticus 19.19 19 right there. Unequally yoked is from the same Greek word as breed with a different kind in the Greek version of Leviticus 19.19, 19, which says, do not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Be separate from unbelievers, is what he's saying. Don't do life with them. Don't be influenced by them. Be holy. All right? Continuing. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Much to say here, but there again, at the very end, we have the fear of God or reverence of God is our motivation. But motivation for what? Again, motivation to live separately from unbelievers. What exactly does that mean? don't, Don't we have to have relationships with unbelievers in order to be the church? Because we're called to evangelize. Well, certainly, absolutely. We have to have relationships with unbelievers in order to be the church. In fact, Paul makes that very point in 1 Corinthians 5. Because you, you can't cut off unbelievers because, because then you, you couldn't be the church. But the key distinction here is that we don't have unbelievers as our closest relationships. Why is that? Because we are to be separate. When we are not separate, the danger is that we will not reflect the holiness of God. The danger is that we will adopt their practices rather than God's practices. When our closest relationships are with the world, we will live like the world. We will start to adopt their ways of spending and investing and making money. Their ways of resting. Their ways of being entertained. Their ways of stewarding our bodies. Their ways of dressing. Their ways of engaging in relationships. Their ways of conducting business. Of caring for our families. Of relating to our spouses. Of expressing emotions. Of eating and drinking. Of educating ourselves and our children. Of thinking about and responding to world events. And most important of all, we will adopt their ways of conceiving of and living before Almighty God. And so it matters. It absolutely matters. We we preach the importance of relationships around here frequently. And I encourage you this morning to take stock of, of that as a means of considering this issue of being distinct 
in your informal worship. Take stock of your closest relationships. Are you unequally yoked in your closest relationships? With with some of those relationships, there may not be anything that you can do because, because some of you may be married to an unbeliever. The Scriptures would say you need to stay in that marriage. And some of you may have children or parents that are unbelievers. Well, you need to honor your parents. You need to care for your children. But, but the answer may be that in the, the, the relationships that you do have with believers, focus on those relationships. Allow the relationships that you have with believers to be the most influential in your life by investing more time in them. And, and, and I, know it's, and it's, I know it's hard because we are, while we're preaching relationships with the church, we are also pushing relationships with the lost. And we're pushing cultivating relationships with them in order to share the good news with them. Listen, you can do both. It's possible. It's just a matter of prioritizing our time and making a distinction between what's my priority and who is influencing who. Who is influencing who? God loves for His people to be distinct in their informal worship. He also loves for His people to be distinct in their object of faith. In their object of faith. Now, this should be obvious. However, it's not so obvious that God doesn't remind His people over and over. And the reason that He must continually remind His people is because you, you, you could see this throughout the Scriptures. You can see it in your own life if you're being honest. The reason that God reminds us over and over who to trust is because we find it so easy to trust things, people, and deities other than Him. So He's constantly reminding us, trust me, trust me. Look at Leviticus 19.26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Now we're going to jump down to verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now what what are we dealing with here? As we talk about mediums, necromancers, and fortune tellers, what's the deal there? Well, these are people consulting spirits and and demons or the dead in order to get answers or direction for life, essentially. And God hates it. Why would God hate that? Because it's founded upon a lack of trust in Him. So so when when, when someone goes to a medium or a necromancer or a fortune teller, they, they are essentially saying, I don't trust God. I don't trust His answers. So I'm going to look somewhere else. But God loves to be trusted. And God hates to be doubted. And He he takes it quite personally. Scan down to chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You see that? There's some language here that we've seen elsewhere in Leviticus. To turn to these other sources of information is to whore after them. We've seen that language before, remember? 
And it's not just this dirty word that we don't tend to use in our culture, but rather it is a word that indicates spiritual adultery. It is the breaking of a covenant. God's people are in a covenant with Him. They're in a marriage with Him. And by going to these other places, they are seeking a spouse elsewhere outside of that marriage. God takes it personally. I am your God. You are my people. I care for you. You trust me. When you resort to these other things, you demonstrate unfaithfulness to me. And you demonstrate that you don't trust me. And it's such a big deal to God that, that people who do this, they are cut off. They're cut off not just as, as a judgment to them, but to remove their influence from the rest of God's people. Now, what, what might be some of the modern-day equivalents of this? Well, among them are mediums and necromancers and fortune tellers. I mean, people, people still do this. But there may be much more common and much less obvious attempts to get direction for life outside of the counsel of God. And I invite you to just think about that. Where is it that we tend to look for answers, for comfort, when we're not trusting the Lord? When we're not looking to the Scriptures? The Bible is a big book. It has much to say. But if we, if we could roll it all up into one ball into one message, that message might be something like this. God created you in His image for fellowship with Him, for His glory. Living with Him, living for Him, that is the only way that you can flourish. And all of your problems stem from the fact that you are in Adam, that is, Your heart is bent against God. Therefore, you are dead in sin in this life and will be eternally separated from Him in hell in the next life. But God, the one that you were conceived hating, He loves sinners, loves them to the extent that He gave His only Son in order to pay the penalty for their rebellion against Him. His name is Jesus the Christ. And He lived a sinless life in the place of sinners. He died on the cross as a substitute for those sinners. And three days later, He rose from the dead so that anyone who repents, who turns away from their sin, and who trusts in Him will be reconciled to God as their Father. They'll be forgiven of their sin and they'll enjoy eternal life with Him forever. Further, the temporal problems that you suffer can be addressed by daily dying to self and applying this this Word of God through the power of His indwelling Holy Spirit. And even at that, your true hope is not that this life will get better, but that Christ will come and bring in the next life Eternal existence with the Godhead in the new heaven and earth. Now the Bible calls people who believe all of that, calls them not just Christians, but calls them believers. And and another way that that we could think of that word believers is trusters. 
they, they trust. That, that's, that's the inherent meaning of this word believe in the New Testament. We trust. They're not just accepting facts, but they have accepted those facts to the extent that they have put their life in the hands of the God who has said these things. They are trusters. That's what they do. They trust Christ. Trust Him for salvation from sin. Trust Him for everything else. And so, what we find increasingly happening in the lives of these trusters is that when they are wronged, rather than taking things into their own hands, they look to and follow the example of Christ described in 1 Peter 2, 22 and following, where Peter writes this, that Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus was the perfect example of one who trusted the Father in everything. And so those who are trusters, they follow Jesus in this. Trusters, we, we find them increasingly. When material resources are scarce, they first seek the kingdom and His righteousness, trusting that all their needs will be supplied. When trials come, they do not seek the strength of foreign substances or, or false refuges, but rather they're content with Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, knowing that when they are weak, Christ is strong in them. They trust in Jesus. When sorrow strikes, they look to the God of all comfort, that they might then turn and comfort others with the comfort with which they themselves have been comforted. When insulted, they turn the other cheek. When in need, they pray. When joyful, they give thanks. When dying, they hope. They are, they are distinct from the world, not in that they trust. Everybody trusts in something. But rather, Christians are distinct in that they trust Christ. They trust Christ. And God loves for His people to be distinct in their object of faith. So I can encourage you to consider, first of all, this morning, the trust worthiness of Jesus. Some of you are in positions this morning where, oh boy, it's tempting, isn't it, to trust in something else? Some, some huge thing that you're facing. And you can see that there might be a way around this, but that way around is going to, is going to call on you to trust in something else, to make another way. But being faithful to the Lord would cut that off from you. So staring at this trial requires you to trust Jesus. I encourage you right now to think about the trustworthiness of Jesus. He's worthy of your trust. Why would I say that? He's never failed you. He's never failed you. And the Father never failed Him. God never failed the Israelites. He is trustworthy. Is there a way in which this morning it's all on the line in a sense? You're being faced with that choice. Just keep in mind God loves for His people to be distinct in their object of faith. He loves for His people to be distinct, loves to be revered. May He be magnified in our hearts and in our distinctiveness 
in the world. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray to close us. And uh, following that, we're going to observe a, a moment of silent reflection. I encourage you before the Lord and in the power of the Spirit to consider these things, how He would have you to respond to what we've seen in the Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we do recognize that you are holy, that you are distinct, you are set apart from all creation in in all your perfections. And we ask that your Holy Spirit residing in us would grant us to love that, love it in such a way that we revere you above all things, that we reverence all your excellencies and we reverence in particular your holiness to the extent that we want it, that we want to be holy, we want to be distinct, and that we will want to be distinct in the ways that we've seen today, distinct in our worship. Lord, help us to pay close attention to the Word, the ways that You've called us to worship You, hold fast to those things, distinct in our informal worship, the way that we live our lives in reverence for You outside of this place, outside of our our corporate gathering. And be distinct in those things, not, not gathered for ourselves the customs of the world, but live for you as you have prescribed in our informal worship. And Father, grant us to be distinct in our object of faith as we, as we face difficulties, as we, as we enjoy your world, as you grant us, as you grant us joys. Lord, let those things all be expressed uniquely because of our object of faith. We pray, Father, that by the way that we conduct ourselves in good times and bad, all saints on this planet and all unbelievers on this planet would see us to be trusters in Christ. And so let Him be magnified in us. Father, we are weak. and We pray for Your help in these things. We do so in the name of Jesus Christ.